Welcome to the record of our forebears podcast. I'm your host, Roland Godette III, and with me today, as usual, is my wonderful wife, Summer Godette. On the record of our forebears, we discuss the stories of some of the dopest black folks that you may or may not have heard of. So grab a pen and some paper, and I realize that's kind of archaic, so also grab maybe your note-taking app and get ready to learn something new. So today we got a couple more people to bring to you And I'm going to start off with The great William Wells Brown Mm. And the first thing I'm going to start is I'm going to read I'm going to read a excerpt from The preface to his narrative It was written by a man named J.C. Hathaway He was a a Quaker preacher uh, One of the contemporaries of William Wells Brown And this is what he wrote uh, As part of his preface to William Wells Brown's William Wells Brown's narrative. Few persons have had greater facilities for becoming acquainted with slavery in all its horrible aspects than William W. Brown. He has been behind the curtain. He has visited its secret chambers. Its iron has entered his own soul. The dearest ties of nature have been riven in his own person. A mother has been cruelly scourged before his own eyes. A father? Alas, slaves have no father. A brother has been made the subject of his tender mercies. A sister has been given up to the irresponsible control of the pale-faced oppressor. This nation looks on approvingly. The American Union sanctions the deeds. The Constitution shields the criminals. American religions sanctify the crime. But the tide is turning. Already, a mighty undercurrent is sweeping onward. The voice of warning, of remonstrance, of rebuke, of entreaty has gone forth. Hand is linked in hand and heart mingles with heart in this great work of the slave's deliverance. Wow. So the man that we know today as William Wells Brown was born in about... 1814, uh, near Lexington, Kentucky. And he was actually, at that time, when he was born, was just known as William. Didn't have a last name, didn't go by a last name. You know, a lot of slaves at that time took their masters or their, you know, enslavers' last names. He didn't do that, or he wasn't given that. He just was given William. It's the name his mother gave him. Uh, she had seven other children, and none of the children had, none of, not more than two of the children had the same father. Mm. Um, she, she had been assaulted by several, uh, different enslavers, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, he was mixed race. His father was a man named George W. Higgins. Uh, he was a white planter and actually one of the like upper class families in Kentucky, like one of the first families, like American families in Kentucky. Mm. And also who was a cousin of the man who was, was William Wells Brown's enslaver. Mm. Uh, and, and the Higgins, uh, George Higgins, actually acknowledged William as his own son. Like, he, people knew. Everybody knew. And he told his cousin, don't sell him. He tried to make him promise not to sell him because he wanted to be able to see him. But his cousin, uh, doctor, his cousin was in that man named Dr. Uh, John Young, actually did sell William Wells Brown and his mother. Uh, he actually had been sold many times even before he reached the age of 20. So, like, more than three times he had been uh, sold off to different people. Uh, he fortunately stayed in the same area, so he was able to see his his mom in the, around the St. Louis, Missouri area. Uh, fun fact, I mean, if things can be fun <laughs> about this time, mm-hmm. uh, William Wells Brown was actually related to a Mayflower passenger. So a passenger of a man, uh, he was related to a man who came over on a Mayflower through his father. Wow. A man named Stephen Hopkins. Okay. So that's kind of crazy. I, yes. When I read that, I was like, "That's that's kind of insane." Like, yes. So he is related to like the first, uh, the first people who you know when we learn about American history, that's mm-hmm. when we learn about the Mayflower. Yes. This guy was related to them, so yeah, you know, can't he, sweep this under the rug. No, he's as American as they get, <laughs> right. right? He he right there at the beginning, his people. 
Um, like I said, he spent most of his life, uh, his enslaved life, his early life in the St. Louis area. So in and around St. Louis, Missouri. Um, we talk about how the enslaved people uh, would get hired out to do different jobs mm-hmm. all the time. And this was no different with William Wells Brown um, or William, as he was known. William was hired out to work at a pub. He said the guy who owned the pub was one of the most vicious men that he had ever run into. Mm. Uh, he, got, he got hired to work at a newspaper office where he was helping on the printing press. And that's where he learned to read and mm. write. Um, he was hired to work at a hotel. He said the hotel was actually run by a guy who was from the north. And he said that that man from the north was, he said there had been never, there had never been a man in all the world who hated slaves more than this man. So this northern man was one of the worst people that he had met, that he met. Wow. Yeah. So just he kind of had an interesting, you know, interesting perspective on the things that he was seeing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times people, why his narrative was so important, particularly at that time, was that in Missouri, Missouri was a border state. People had assumed that slavery in the South was where it was harsh. Mississippi, Mm -hmm. um, Alabama, Mm -hmm. Florida, Texas. While it was harsh there, his book also revealed to people that no, on the border states, it was harsh too. It wasn't benevolent slavery there. Mm -hmm. It was harsh there too. Um, one of the jobs that he got hired out at that he spent uh, most of his time doing was he worked on steamboats. Yeah, so steamboats that would go up mm-hmm. and down the Mississippi River, Missouri River. He worked on those boats. So by January 1808, so we're going back a little bit, mm-hmm. the Atlantic slave trade was abolished. So the only way that people could get slaves legally, like people were still trying to bring slaves from Africa, mm-hmm. but the only way they can get them legally at the time was they started having an interstate slave trading. So they was, so states from, uh, there were border states up north where it wasn't as much agricultural agriculture. They would be selling their slaves to plantations, to the big giant plantations that we, when we think about plantations mm-hmm. in the south. Mm-hmm. And so somebody had to do those jobs. And a lot of times it was the steamboat operators or people who traveled on these steamboats who were, uh, they called them uh, slavers. They were mm-hmm. slave traders. Mm-hmm. They would go back and forth to these different ports, bringing slaves and selling them. And that was his job. His mm-hmm. job was to help the slaver get the slaves prepared to be sold. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So yeah, he talks about it in his narrative, how it was just it, it was agonizing for him to, to have to do this. And so he talks about one of the trips. I thought it was really interesting. So I'm just going to read what he wrote about one of the trips um, going down the Mississippi and Missouri river. He said, there was in this lot, a number of old men and women, some of them with gray locks. And we left St. Louis. I had to prepare the old slaves for market. I was ordered to have the old men's whiskers shaved off and the gray hairs plucked out. Where they, were too, where they weren't too numerous. In which case, if they were too numerous, he had in preparation a blacking to color it. And black brushing, we would put on it. This was new business to me. And was performed in a room where the other passengers could not see us. These slaves were also told how old they were by Mr. Walker. And after going through the blacking process, they looked 10 or 15 years younger. And I'm sure that some of those who purchased slaves of Mr. Walker were dreadfully cheated, <laughs> especially in the ages of the slaves which they bought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they basically were ripping people off by selling them old men and old women that they dyed their hairs to make them look younger. Mm. And he had to be a part of it. I mean, otherwise, you know, the consequences are, you know, physical harm. Mm-hmm. Um, So while he was on one of his many trips on the steamboats, he started to plan his escape. And a lot of times the steamboats would go up uh, to Ohio. They would they would port in like Cincinnati. And, you know, if you know anything about the Underground Railroad, Cincinnati was kind of like that was the north. Once you get out of Kentucky, like you're in the north. Yes. And so if you can make it to Cincinnati, there might be somebody there, Underground Railroad, who can help you. Yeah, that's a wonderful Underground Railroad museum in In Cincinnati Cincinnati as well. And 
there's just a lot of stories about people who made it to Cincinnati, mm-hmm. people who got caught, mm-hmm. but people who made it and made it free and mm-hmm. made it, you know, continue going north to various places. Uh, some of them even going to Detroit, you know, and then crossing into Canada from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so on New Year's Day, 1834, the steamboat he was on docked at Cincinnati and he was going to flee. And this is what he wrote about his uh, his escape. At last, the time for action arrived. I found that it would be impossible to carry anything with me but that which was on my person. I had some provisions and a single suit of clothes about half worn. When the boat was discharging her cargo and the passengers engaged carrying their baggage on and offshore, I saw the opportunity to convey myself with my little effects on land. I took up a trunk and I went to the wharf and soon I was out of the crowd and I made directly for the woods. I remained there until night, knowing well that I could not travel even in the state of Ohio during the day without danger of being arrested. I had long since made up in my mind that I would not trust myself in the hands of any man, white or colored. The slave is brought up to look at every white man as an enemy to him and his race. And 21 years in slavery had taught me that there were traitors even among colored people. After dark, I emerged from the woods, but I knew not which way to go. I didn't know north from south, east from west. I looked in vain for the North Star, but a heavy cloud hid it from my view. I walked up and down the road until near midnight when the clouds disappeared, and I welcomed the sight of my friend, truly the slave's friend, the North Star. As soon as I saw it, I knew my course, and before daylight, I traveled 20 or 25 miles. It being winter, I suffered intensely from the cold. Being without an overcoat and my other clothes were rather thin for the season. I was provided with a tinderbox so that I could make a fire when necessary, but, and, but for this, I should have certainly frozen to death. So he just was out in the elements, right? He wasn't prepared. No, he wasn't prepared, all. but he was mentally, he was prepared. Yes. But he didn't have the supplies. Like mm. He wasn't, you know. New Year's Day, still cold in Ohio. Ohio's up north, you know, it's cold. He continues. I was determined not to go to any house for shelter. And I traveled at night and lay and would lay down during the day. Mm. On the fourth day, my provisions gave out. And then what to do, I could not tell. Have something, have something to eat, I must. But how to get it was the question. On the first night after my food was gone, I went into a barn on the roadside and found some ears of corn. I took 10 or 12 of them and kept on my journey, thanking God that I was so well provided for. Like That's faith right there. You know, mm-hmm. he ain't got no food. Mm-hmm. But he's like, I got a couple of these ears of corn. Man, let me thank God for that because mm-hmm. I could survive a few more days. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, I was just reading this like, man. So he continues on. My escape to a land of freedom now appeared certain. And the prospects of the future occupied a great part of my thoughts. What should be my occupation was a, sub, was, a, was a great subject of anxiety to me. On the fifth or sixth day, it rained very fast and it froze about as fast as it fell so that my clothes were one glare of ice. I traveled on at night until I became so chilled and benumbed, the wind blowing into my face that I found it impossible to go any further. And accordingly, took shelter in a barn where I was obligated to walk about to keep from freezing. So he just in a barn walking back and forth, even though he said he wasn't going no builders, but he like, I, I'm going to freeze yeah, out here. Yeah. I'm freeze to death. So freeze to death. goes into the bar. He's just walking back and forth, trying to stay warm. He said, nothing but the providence of God and that old barn saved me from freezing to death. I, I received a severe cold which settled upon my lungs. And from time to time, my feet had been frostbitten. So that it was difficult so, so that it was with difficulty I could walk. In this situation, I traveled for two days when I found that I must seek shelter somewhere or die. But the thought of death was nothing frightful to me compared with that of being caught and carried back into slavery. So he's willing to die. Mm-hmm. Nothing but the prospect of enjoying liberty could have induced me to undergo such trials. I was desirous of reaching on my way to Canada. And this, I know, will sound strangely to the ears of people in foreign lands. 
but it is nevertheless true. An American citizen was fleeing from a Democratic, Republican, Christian government to receive protection under the monarchy of Great Britain. While the people of the United States boast of their freedom, they at the same time keep three million of their own citizens in chains. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is a incredible story of escape. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the boldness to say, I don't have nothing. I'm going to take the little food I got in my pocket. I don't got no coat. I'm going to grab this uh, luggage off the thing. They think I'm helping them take it. <laughs> luggage <laughs> off the ship. They think I'm helping them take it. And I'm in the woods. And I'm just on a run. Not really knowing where to go. You're just knowing that I'm in the north. I'm free now. Mm-hmm. As long mm-hmm. as I don't get caught, I'm free. So eventually, uh, he met with a anti-slavery Quaker man named Wells Brown. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar. <laughs> so Wells Brown and his wife housed and fed him and hid him from anyone that was looking for him, that was mm-hmm. trying to capture him. Um, as he you know, got his health back together and prepared to continue on north, he decided that he was going to take Wells Brown as part of his name out of respect for them. And that's how he became known as William Wells Brown. Okay. So he briefly settled in Cleveland and he married a free African-American woman there named Elizabeth. They had two daughters and he later moved on to Buffalo, New York, where he spent about nine years uh, working as a steamboat, uh, working on a steamboat on Lake Erie and a conductor for the Underground Railroad, helping other people get out of there. By 1843, he was lecturing regularly on his experiences in slavery for the Western New York Anti-Slavery Society. And then by that time, he also became committed to lecturing on behalf of women's rights and temperance laws. So he was against, you know, too much alcohol. And I mean, in the 1840s, he was, you know, advocating for women's rights, which was rare, you know. It was even some of these slavery societies that had women in them, but didn't want to give them the rights. So mm-hmm. He was kind mm-hmm. of a rare breed. Um, in 1845, after he saw the success of Frederick Douglass's narrative, he published his own narrative titled The Narrative of William Wells Brown, A Fugitive Slave, written by himself. And because of the success of his narrative, it allowed him to travel across Europe between uh, around 1850 and 1854. And he was giving lectures across Europe. Um, you know, giving those speeches, we talked about it in the William and Ellen Craft episode mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with William and Ellen Craft. Mm-hmm. He was there with them when, when they were in Europe and they were just talking about their experiences in slavery and how they escaped and just the, you know, the viciousness of American slavery. Uh, he also wrote two additional books while he was there. He wrote a book called Three Years in Europe. Where he talked about his time in Europe. <laughs> that was published in 1852. And... It was the first travel book ever to be written by African-American. Mm. And then he wrote a novel called Clotel or The President's Daughter, which was published a year later. And it's one of the earliest novels ever written by an African-American. What president's daughter did he write about? So Clotel um, was a novel about a, a young woman who was the daughter of Thomas Jefferson, because even then there were the rumors that. People that, you know, people, people knew, that knew he had black about children. Thomas Jefferson and his, mm-hmm. the children that he had with Sally Hemings. And so even then they knew when he wrote a book about So it. he wrote an entire book. Uh, a novel about oh, what, wow. uh, what life as the daughter of the president, <laughs> even, as a slave, but the daughter of the president would have been like. I need that book. Uh, I got it. Oh, thanks. I'll make sure I pass it on to you. Okay. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's a really good book. And in 1858, he wrote a play called The Escape. Wow. And it became the first play ever to be published by an African-American. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know this. When Wells Brown was a beast. Man. <laughs> okay. So we after, got, I'm sorry, go ahead. We got to find the play too. Do you have the play? I don't have the play, but okay. I will try to find that. But right. We'll get it. We'll okay. get the play. So after the Civil War and the official end of chattel slavery, his public career slowly uh, you know, wound down. Mm-hmm. And he eventually settled in Boston. And he was there until his death in November 6, 1884. Wow. Yeah. So when was Brown was an incredible, incredible person. Very incredible. And then just like I was expecting like his escape um, from being enslaved to be like just as huge, like, you know, like a crazy account because 
we see his name um, mm-hmm. in many accounts of other, um, you know, black Americans, you know, throughout this time period. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, he must have been like this crazy mastermind. Like, mm-hmm. I know, <laughs> yep. you know, all of these routes and but wow, just nope, just in the woods, <laughs> just in the woods, waiting it out and, you know. Allowing his faith to get mm-hmm. him through his faith in God, yep. you know. He saw the opportunity and wow. just took it. And so the last thing I want to read is there's another excerpt from the preface of the book written by J.C. Hathaway. Okay. And I feel like it's important because just, just listen, it's important. And I feel like J.C. Hathaway hit some points here, especially when talking about William Wells Brown. He says, reader, are you an abolitionist? What have you done for the slave? What are you doing on his behalf? What do you purpose to do? There's a great work before us. Who will be an idler now? This is the great humanitarian movement of the age, swallowing up for the time being all other questions comparatively. Are you a Christian? This is carrying out the practical, carrying out, this is the carrying out of practical Christianity, and there is no other. Christianity is practical in its very nature and essence. It is a life springing out of a soul imbued with its spirit. Are you a friend of the missionary cause? This is the greatest missionary enterprise of the day. Are you a friend of the Bible? Come then, let us help to restore to these millions whose eyes have been bored out by slavery their sight that they might see to read the Bible. Do you love God whom you have not seen? Then manifest that love by restoring to your brother whom you have seen his rightful inheritance of which he has been which he has been so long and so cruelly deprived. Mm. That's wow. how this man felt about reading William Wells Brown account of slavery mm. and just the viciousness of what he went through. Mm-hmm. And his his narrative is not long; it's about forty pages, mm-hmm. but it is jam packed full of just all types of like. Just viciousness, like mm-hmm. malicious mm-hmm. behavior that he witnessed, yet he still had faith in God and still held on to that. Mm-hmm. And that's what got him through that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So William Wells Brown is a beast. Amazing. Yeah. And just amazing. And then he still carried on um, his life, you know, with his life help, helping others yep. um, to seek freedom, you know, from their bondage. So Absolutely. Wow. And another another African-American who who was international. Mm -hmm. So, again, seeing these people, hearing these stories of um, these uh, black people from this diaspora who jumped, who moved from continent to continent Mm -hmm. and were in that I never really even thought about, you know, Mm -hmm. meant that they were moving around the world. Okay, well. Wonderful story. Um, hopefully we can access his writings and other writings about him for free on the public domain. Oh, yeah. All the stuff is, most um, of his stuff is free on the public domain yes, because it's so old. Because so. it's so old, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, it's out there. So go and and get familiar with, with these amazing people. Absolutely. So um, thinking about, again... Um, just those black Americans or people of the black uh, diaspora who were um, who had an impact on different continents, multiple continents. Right. It's going to lead, lead us to our next person here. Reverend Henry Highland Garnett. Now, Reverend Henry Highland Garnett was born into slavery in Chesterville, Maryland, formerly known as, or when he was born, known as New Market, Maryland. Mm. And that's in Kent County, Maryland. He was born on December 23rd, 1815. So we're back, back into time, right? right? Around the same time. time. Now, both of Henry's parents were enslaved. Um, However, I felt that it was important to note that uh, Henry's grandfather was an African chief and warrior. And he 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 ended up being enslaved because he was in a tribal fight. Uh, He was captured and then he was sold to slave traders Mm. who brought him to North America Um, and then where he was sold. And we have his enslaver's name is Colonel William Spencer. Mm. 
So that's just important to note because that that knowledge is passed down to um, a young Henry um, Highland Garnett about his family's African origins. We know many uh, Africans when um, they were enslaved and captured, they were sold all throughout, you know, that that triangular area um, through the Atlantic. And um, many people were traded with people of, from different tribes and different nations. And that was purpose, you know, done mm-hmm. on purpose so that they couldn't communicate yep. um, and that they couldn't um, escape. And then you couldn't revolt. Couldn't revolt. Yeah. And then um, even once they made it, a lot of the history was unable to be passed down because mm-hmm. families are being split up and broken. Right. And then they're pushed all around uh, the world or the, the North Americas. But, and you know, what we know from this history that we've read is that Henry Hi- Henry Highland Garnett knew about his African ancestors mm-hmm. and his chiefdom, which is going to be very important as we carry on into this story. All right. So in 1824, Garnett's parents, they secured permission from their enslaver to attend a funeral. So the family went, uh, they took all of the family members there were 11 members of the of his family. They went to a funeral. So what do you think they did if they all went together oh, off they, of the plantation? Well, they left. Oh, they left. Yeah, they got uh, They ran. Yeah, they <laughs> so uh, they escaped uh, in a covered wagon. Up. Yes. Messed up. Oh, we're all we together all at go. once we and we're here. not on this plantation? Yeah, we out of here. Good day to you, sir. <laughs> so they left um, and um, they left via Wilmington, Delaware, and they were helped by, again, here we, here we go, um, hearing about... Quakers mm-hmm. by a Quaker um, in the Underground Railroad. He was a station master. I'm using my air quotes. Mm-hmm. Thomas Garrett. Um, now, when Henry was ten, the family moved to New York City, um, and he was able to go to school. Wow. So, I'm um, in uh, 1826. He attended the African Free School, and we've talked about these various schools that were uh, catered to you know, Negroes to enslaved or runaway, um, formerly enslaved people because mm-hmm. they needed to be able to read and write. Yeah, and they were kept um, uneducated were, in slavery for yes, the most part. Yeah. And they were so. kept uneducated and enslaved, you know, purposely so, so that they would have to, you know, they, they would be easily or I guess my air quotes again, oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so he was able to go to school, which in my mind, I'm like, of course he's 10. He should go to school, right? Um, And it was unfortunate, but his education was interrupted um, two years later. So in 1826, uh, he had to find employment and he began working as a cabin boy. And so similar to, you know, what we just heard here Mm -hmm. um, about William, he was on boats and ships and he took voyages to Cuba Oh. Mind blowing for me. Um, and then he also uh, took a voyage as a cook and a steward uh, running um, from New York to Virginia, sp- okay. um, specifically to Alexandria, Virginia. And again, oh, we know where that's at. yes, we know <laughs> where that is. We, we um, lived in that area. And so just again, a very young child and, you know, 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he did that for about a year. Now, in 1829, when he returned from um, this voyage to uh, from the Alexandria voyage, he found out that his family had been located by slave hunters. So we talked about people before where we know that just getting free, just getting north is not always the end of their story. No, right. No, because they're coming after them. because they're coming after you. You are owned by someone. And mm-hmm. so they consider you property. Yeah. And that's that's a value lost. Yeah. Right. For their business. Yeah. So they were um, his family found out that they were located by slave hunters. His sister, Eliza, um, she was actually um born in and named Mary, she was arrested, but she was able to free herself because she had her paperwork proving that she was a resident in the free state of New York. Oh, wow. Um, his father, they said his father jumped off of a roof of a two-story building in order to escape his slave catchers. So he was able to escape. And they said that Henry, of course, they didn't know where Henry was. He was just returning. Mm-hmm. They're thinking that he had his mother in mind who, you know, he's like, they're going to take my mother. Right. He um, he had escaped 
Uh, um, but he ended up having, I guess they said he kind of was like, well, I don't want them to take my mom. He ran into, um, onto Broadway. We're thinking about there in New York, mm-hmm. Broadway, busy Broadway, and was just like, I'm going to confront these slave catchers and I have a knife <laughs> and this is going to protect me and my mom. And, um, that would that would not have worked, which um, just luckily his friends saw him and said some of his friends saw him and they took him uh, and um, they're like, they're not here yet. You need to get out of the city. Okay. So they were able to relocate him to Jericho, Long Island. And then he stayed there um, under the protection of another Quaker named Thomas Willis. Okay. And um, he became uh, Henry became an indentured servant. Okay. Um, under uh, Thomas. And um, was able to um, work with him and uh, a captain, because, you know, he has this skill now working on the boats, Um, Captain Smith of Smithtown, Long Island. Um, But Henry ended up suffering um, an injury to his right leg and Thankfully, he was released from that indentured servitude. So we know mm-hmm. that there were many people, um, black and white, who were servants of households during that yeah. time, um, but they were indentured. So they worked right for a certain period of time. Period of time. And it was an indentured servitude was something that you did voluntarily. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you would put yourself in an indenture. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, uh, a lot of times I've had conversations with people. They try to compare, well, you know. Slavery, it was just indentured servitude. Like, mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. It, it's different. Indentured yes. servitude was something you did voluntarily, mm-hmm. whereas slavery was something that was uh, forced upon you. Yes. So, and you normally died in right. that bondage. Yeah, you say that it was a lifetime. Yeah, that was your it life was sentence. Lifetime, yep. <laughs> for lifetime that. condition. Yes. So um, because he was injured, he was able to be released from that um, contract. And then he went back to school. He returned to the African Free School for a year. And um, while he was there, he began his career in abolitionism. So he was able to make friends with other like-minded African or uh, Negro or black uh, men at that time. His classmates at the school included Charles L. Reason. I didn't know about Charles Reason. Charles Reason is a, was a mathematician, a linguist, and he was the first black college professor in the United States. Wow. His other friend that he, um, another student there that he befriended was George T. Downing. He was a civil rights activist and a prominent restaurateur. He had restaurants in New York, Rhode Island, and Washington, D.C. These were black men. Um, And he used his restaurants as stops on the Underground Railroad. Just, of course, right? Mm -hmm. However, his restaurants were like all the, you know, the rage for uh, prominent uh, white, wealthy, like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people in those areas. But, you know, little did they yeah. know. The whole time you funding the Underground Railroad. <laughs> you're funding the Underground Railroad yep. and providing Under- safe passage for people. And his other good friend is Ira Aldr- Aldrich. Uh, he was a black American born British actor. So he left, you know, like many people who we know of um, in America who had to go to other black Americans who had to go to other countries Mm -hmm. um, in order to seek out their careers. And um, he was an actor, a playwright. Um, Aldrich was also a theater manager and he was one of like the first like black, like um, I think well known. There's a title for it, but they're like Shakespearean actors. Yes. So uh, very well known um, from that. So he made like these really amazing friends. They were civil rights activists. They were abolitionists, entrepreneurs. entrepreneurs. Wow. Um, they moved in circles with, um, you know, there were House of Representative. There were black reps. Mm-hmm. All these things that happened after, you know, we're doing with during that period um, of Reconstruction. But in 1831, uh, he continued his education at the Phoenix High School for Colored Youth. So it was during this time that he learned about Christianity. Mm. He started attending a Sunday school at the First Colored Presbyterian Church, and he was baptized by Reverend Theodore Cedric Wright, and they became close friends until Wright's uh, passing. Okay. Now, in 1835, uh, Henry enrolled at the New Noyes Academy in Canaan, New Hampshire, However, like we've known about and we've spoken about a lot of those other black schools, Mm -hmm. even though it was in the north, it was shut down by anti-abolitionists. And then they destroyed the building, destroyed the school, and then they forced all of the black Americans, the black people out of town. 
So it was wow. just like you would really? think the north is safe. We mm-hmm. talk about if we can just get to Cincinnati. Yep. But there were still people who took it amongst themselves um, to just really, you know, spread hate. And and so even though we know that we have um, there were white, you know, Americans who were abolitionists and mm-hmm. who supported it. There were also anti abolitionists as like, well. Like they didn't want to see them on equal footing, it seems. No, like. no. So he still was, you know. Uh, he was still going to finish his studies and he was able to do that at the um, Oneida Institute in Whitesboro, New York. Okay. And before this time, of course, it was whites only, but they had recently begun admitting um, people of all races and ethnicities there. And so there they said he shined. Of course, you you know, he's an intellectual. We're seeing they said he was known at that school um, as a brilliant person. yet wonderful uh, rhetorical skills and he was very witty. And then he graduated. So finally, he was able to graduate in 1839. And um, they said he injured his knee and his lower um, his lower leg. I don't know if it was right or left, but it had to be amputated. So, wow. you know, we're getting another uh, picture of him. I'm like as a. Um, as a, a differently able person, right? Mm-hmm. Or a disabled person as well. In 1841, Reverend Garnett married Julia Williams. Okay. So they met as students at the Noyes Academy and they completed their education together at the uh, Oneida, Oneida Institute. Okay. So his wife was um, was educated as well, which was something that, you know, it's really cool here to hear um, her story. And then they both moved their family to Troy, New York. And their... Um, so just been all over the state. All New over New York. Like we're just here and, and we're we're teaching and preaching. Yep. So he taught school, he studied theology there, and then he became the pastor of Liberty Street Presbyterian Church. And that uh, he held that position for six years. That church is still there today. So wow. pretty, pretty cool. Um, an amazing history here. Now, um, his friend, William G. Allen was also an alumni from that Oneida Institute. Now, he published the National Watchman, which was a prominent abolitionist newspaper. And they uh, closely identified with the church, just like William, Mm -hmm. you know, Wells Brown, they supported the temperance movement, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and they, uh, he also became a strong um, advocate for uh, of political anti-slavery as well. And I know that he moved, like I said before, with other um, other individuals who were black or identified as black who were trying to have, be representatives oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in our government as well. So Garnett, he sheltered fugitive slaves, just like his friends that you yep. know we noted earlier. Of course. And and his church, because we have this place of refuge and we're going to use it as a place of mm-hmm. refuge. So even the Liberty Street Church, you know, was a, was a path on the Underground Railroad. And um, uh, his friend Garrett Smith, he was a former uh, he was a U.S. representative and a, a former presidential candidate. But we're talking about like the 1848, like presidential election. So a long, long time ago, but still he was a presidential <laughs> candidate. Um, he announced in his church, Garrett Smith had announced his plan for giving grants of land in New York to disenfranchise black men. Wow. And so I was able to kind of look it up. And I think that area was called like Timbuktu, New York. So obviously they're giving it this. African African, name um, to try and do that. And I don't, I'm not sure if it ever, you know, came into fruition um, because obviously we don't know him as a president. (laughs) Um, But wow, you know, just, you know, seeing, um, like I said, uh, seeing him move in circles with both black and white, you know, abolitionists and civil rights activists. Now he said, Here's where he gets controversial, right? (laughs) Reverend Garner said that slaves should act for themselves to achieve total emancipation. Mm. He promoted an an armed rebellion Mm. as the most effective way to end slavery. Now, you know these names. Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, along with many other abolitionists, both black and white, they thought that Reverend Garnett's ideas were too radical and they could damage the cause, right? Mm -hmm. This cause by arousing too much fear and resistance among among whites. So this was definitely different for me to hear, you know, this stance on like, no, we have to fight for our our rights. Well, because normally when we think of that, we think of like, 
Martin Luther King and Malcolm mm-hmm. X. Like mm-hmm. we think of it in the sense of you know during Jim Crow. Yes. Like there was the you know Malcolm X by anything by any means necessary. Yes. And then Martin Luther King was you know he had the nonviolence. Thing. Yes. And we kind of look at that you know it's kind of like oh it's just these are the only two ways and mm-hmm. you know there was this big. Mm-hmm. You know, disagreement. We think of it only happening then, but to see it happening literally like a century before that. Yes. Like we should know this history. Like we this has been a large debate and still is a large debate Mm -hmm. right now. So I I feel like the heat was on for Reverend Garnett. So in 1850, he went to Britain. He went to Great Britain, you know, at that time. That's where they go. When they they get too hot. Well, yeah, they leave the country. So he went to Great Britain. Yes. And uh, but he was invited there. um, by Anna Richardson of the Free uh, pr- uh, Produce Movement, and um, they uphold slavery. And so um, what they did was they rejected the use of products that were produced by slave labor. Oh, wow. New information to me. Like, what? These people were, like, doing this like back in the day. They were boycotting. Yeah, so boy, we're going to wow. boycott the tobacco. We're going to boycott the rice. We're going to boycott the cotton. Like, wow. yes, that makes sense. Let's, like, you know hit their pockets. Um, but there, and he was a great, he was a popular lecturer there and he spent two and a half years lecturing. I think while he was there, um, one of his children died. Mm-hmm. He was gone, you know, for a long time. Um, in 1852, he was sent to Kingston, Jamaica as a missionary. Oh, wow. Um, he and his family, they spent three years there and his wife, uh, Julia, uh, Garnett led an industrial school for girls. So these people were again, just, so ahead of their time. So they're um, educating, they're spreading the gospel. Yes, all around the yeah. world. Um, and then uh, Garnett, he had uh, health problems that led the family uh, returning back to the United States. Now, we've brought up this name before, John Brown. Many mm-hmm. of us know about John Brown. After John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859, Garnett led a sermon. And in his sermon, he said these this controversial statement. <laughs> he declared it, quote, the duty of every man who loved the cause of freedom to declare that the Harper's Ferry movement was right and that anyone who would not say so boldly had much better say nothing at all. Mm. Um, he was described as a, quote unquote, friend and admirer of the heroic John Brown. Now, did we have we spoke about John Brown before? Like, have we talked about this rate? Uh, no, he, there we, were a lot of people who were killed, right, during well, this yeah, rate. We, we mentioned it. So John Brown was uh, a very he was a very staunch opponent of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, he went to. So when Kansas and Nebraska were when they were trying to make Kansas a state, they were going to let Kansas choose whether they wanted slavery or not. So what happened was pro-slavery people and anti-slavery people started pouring into Kansas mm-hmm. to basically try to sway the vote. John Brown was one of those anti-slavery people. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pro-slavery people were kind of being violent towards the anti-slavery people, kicking them out of town. So John Brown and his sons decided, we're going to kill the pro-slavery people. Oh. And they started like, uh, just essentially it was a war in mm-hmm. Kansas. Mm-hmm. And they called that Bleeding Kansas. Eventually, Kansas became a state and it became a free state. Mm-hmm. Um, then he decided that that wasn't enough. Um, so people have this idea that John Brown just, dis- well, let me say it like this. They had this idea that he decided just one day, yes. I'm going to have a, yes. a, a raid and try to start an uprising. Yes. He was intent on letting slavery be, um, like letting the legislature get rid of slavery, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. And he was like, it's not going to happen. That's what his conclusion he came to was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. The only way to do it was to be violent. By force. Be, do it by force. And yes. he tried to get like Harriet Tubman and uh, Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. to come with him mm-hmm. on his raid. And they were going to raid the armory at Harper's Ferry mm-hmm. and take the weapons and give them to, to slaves, the enslaved people. To the enslaved people. And essentially make a, a revolt. Yes. Like start yes. a war to a, say, here, fight for your freedom, yes. blow some guns. And we know that revolts were happening in different places, mm-hmm. some unsuccessfully, some successfully, like in Haiti, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, so this is very controversial. Yeah. Um, so when the Civil War started, um, Garnett, uh, his hopes for um, what he had wanted to do was immigrating, um, uh, moving Africans over. Um, 
Back to the country. Back to Africa, right? Mm. So again, we know he has the mindset that I come from royalty, um, chiefdom, let's go back there. But that ended up, you know, stopped being, I guess, stopped or placed on hold because we had this civil war. Mm. Um, and um, in a three day, there was like a three day New York draft riots um, in July. So this was, this is in the historical account. Mm. Mobs attacked black Blacks and black owned businesses wow. and buildings and Garnett and his family, they escaped the attack because his daughter, she they said like she went and chopped their nameplate off of the business mm-hmm. um, uh, before the mobs came into their areas and wow. they didn't, you know, they were unable to, to reach them. Anyway, he he organized a committee for six soldiers and then he he served. Um, he just worked uh, as an almoner. Uh, to the New York Benevolent Society for victims of that mob attack. So oh, wow. trying to help those black black people there. Um, when the federal government approved creating black units and regiments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Reverend Garnett helped with recruiting the United States colored troops. And we've talked about people again who helped with recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, Talking about Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass, right? Mm -hmm. All of these people who our government called on Mm -hmm. um, and they heeded the call to help, um, you know, get troops to fight. Now, he moved with his family. So they're moving again to Washington, D.C. so that they could support the black soldiers in the war effort. And he preached the gospel to many of them while serving as a pastor of the prominent uh, Liberty Street Presbyterian Church or the 15th Street Presbyterian Church at that time from 1864 until 1866. During this time, he was the first black minister to preach to the U.S. House of Representatives, and he addressed them on February 12th, 1865, about the end of slavery and um, on occasion, the passage of the 13th Amendment. Now, after the war in 1868, Reverend Garnett was appointed president of Avery College in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He uh, later returned to New York as a pastor of the Shiloh Presbyterian Church. This was formerly known as the First Colored Presbyterian Church. And it's um, and now the St. James Presbyterian Church in Harlem. Uh, In uh, 1870. His wife, Julia, died. And in 1875, he remarried. So he married Sarah Smith Tompkins. She was a New York school teacher, a principal, a suffrage, a suffragist and a community organizer. So, again, I'm um, just really excited to hear about how both the um, he and his wives, like they were um, very a- uh, active in their faith mm-hmm. um, and in the community. And working too. And then he was appointed as a U.S. minister, the ambassador to Liberia, um, where he he moved there in December 1881. His daughter was already there. um, Mary Garnett Barboza. She had created a school um, teaching girls there and she lived in Liberia. And um, this was something that he had really looked forward to because before the war, he was encouraging um, blacks in America to move back to Africa to be able to to have a safe place Mm -hmm. to raise their families and to live. But shortly after he moved there in December and February, he died of malaria. Mm. Um, So he, he was able to be there a little while with his family and um, to get that dream Mm. in 1952. So we're moving forward now in 1952, Reverend Garnett's portrait was included among those and civil rights bill passes, um, and there's uh, in 1866, there was a, a mural painted mm-hmm. in the Hall of Capitals. Um, the Cox Corridors of the Capitol Building in Washington, D.C. Um, was painted of him. And that's there. And then, of course, there have been um, several schools, buildings named in his honor. And so while, you know, he was a controversial char- char- uh, character person. Right. Mm-hmm. Um there's still many of us who do not know of Reverend Henry Highland Garnett and what he did for uh, Christianity, um, for America, the um, during the Civil War, mm-hmm. the efforts there. Um, so just an amazing person, Absolutely. an amazing person, which is like these are people, too. They're not black or white like they have these whole I mean you know like yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're they're human just like us, but mm-hmm. still. um Allowing their faith in God to lead them and to really do some do some things that I feel like a lot of folks 
who maybe if they were in their position, they would choose the comfortable route. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so just another amazing person that um, I hope that you all are able to get familiar um, with as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it mm-hmm. takes a certain kind of boldness to do um, a lot of the things that, that we've been talking about mm-hmm. in the last few weeks. Just a lot of the um, steps that, that they took, a lot of the things that they wrote at the time, like in the middle of slavery, mm-hmm. saying that, hey, we should arm ourselves and... Like that takes some boldness to mm-hmm. say something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that takes some I, I don't fear I don't fear death because I know that, you know, what does the Bible say? To live is Christ, to die is gain. To die is gain. So mm-hmm. I don't fear death because mm-hmm. my faith is not here. Mm-hmm. My faith is in you know, in, in God. Mm-hmm. So yeah, man, like wow, that's incredible. Yeah, it really is. And and I felt like when I when I what I have learned about like the, the back to Africa kind of movement, mm-hmm. um, like we know about Marcus Garvey, mm-hmm. like in Garveyism and like we're going to move, you know, um, black people in America back um, to, you know, at least we're going to go back to West Africa. Mm-hmm. But not only that, but to hear like there are other people, other ideas on the subject. And um, it was said that at his passing, even though he and Frederick Douglass were at odds like with each other. Frederick Douglass was still, they said, very uh, sad at his passing Mm -hmm. because he knew how important he was to America um, and um, to black Americans as well. So, you know, he still had uh, a major effect Mm -hmm. um, even on other leaders, you know, um, abolitionists and and civil rights leaders. So, yeah, that is that's an incredible, incredible man you introduced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we welcome everyone that's listening to get familiar with Henry Highland Garnett get familiar with William Wells Brown and we hope that you join us next time as we discover some couple more new people Mm -hmm. we have some surprises for you coming up you know uh, as time goes on we'll see what's uh, see what we've got in store yes thank you for joining us peace until next time